Welcome to the Josh Blair Ministry Podcast, a podcast all about bringing inspiration and encouragement to your daily walk with Jesus. We pray the message you hear impacts you as you follow Christ. And we're kicking off this series, and it's based on focusing on those who are skeptical about the things of God, maybe skeptical about God's existence, skeptical of the Bible, skeptical of Jesus, maybe skeptical of Christianity. And the goal is that we will create a dialogue with those who are skeptical and and potentially point them in the right direction. So we titled it, we use the word problem uh, in this series because problem denotes a, a question that needs to be solved, an issue that needs a solution. And in our world today, we can quickly overlook God and try to erase God from society, but there is a sustaining problem with things that we cannot answer. And so this is the idea of the problem of God. What do you do with this idea of God, who God is, what we say God to be, who God is to be in us? And so for over the next five weeks, we're going to be answering these questions. The first one that we're going to be doing this morning is, does God even exist? Do you you think that we can prove that God exists? Some of you are like, I'm not sure. Well, we're going to go through that this morning. We're going to look at, is Jesus just another myth? There's this, going, this saying going around that Jesus didn't even exist. It's just a, a, a character that, that people made up. And we're going to look at that. We're going to be answering the question, does science disprove the Bible? Those of you who graduated, you've gone through some classes, or you'll be going into some classes that are going to be challenging your faith and saying that science disproves the Bible. And we want to help you understand and answer that question. Here's a big one that we're going to answer. Is God anti-sex? On that Sunday, I'll give you a warning so that if you're concerned about your children being in that, it won't be too graphic. But I do want us to know, because society tells us certain things regarding sex, and we want to know what God has to say about that. Would you agree? So we're going to look at that as well. And then we're going to look at, aren't all Christians hypocrites? Don't look at your neighbor on that one. Okay? Uh, but we're going to be answering... <laughs> That one as well. And the reason is, it's twofold. First, because I want to empower believers. Because Christians historically have been viewed as people that have been naive and ignorant to common natural truths in in the world that we turned a blind eye to. Particularly uh, things regarding creation or uh, things regarding social economics and statuses. And so I want to empower you when you're challenged with certain things in your life or when you encounter people that challenge those things, that you have the ability to answer those things rationally and logically and not being flustered uh, when, when those kind of things happen. Would you, would you uh, like that to happen when you, when you encounter people that have differing views than you, that you have something of sustainability to answer them? That's, that's part of the, the goal. And the second thing is, is to encounter those who are skeptical. The, the next four weeks after this Sunday, I want you to invite people that, that don't believe in God so that we can have real dialogue, so that we can have real conversations with people that are questioning. I think that in our culture, we have lost the art of argument. We have become such a sensitive culture that I can't even sit down with you and have a conversation with you if you have an opposing view from me because you threaten my very status as a person. It's a weird thing today in our culture that we can't even sit down and have conversations with people without them uh, getting defensive or argumentative and wanting to fight or run. And and that's a big issue. 
in our society. We've become, we've become snowflakes, in a sense. You've heard that term. We've become so sensitive that I can't, I can't hear your opposing view because it hurts me. And as if that's going to rip apart the fabric of our society, but in fact, it's ripping apart the fabric of our society because we won't have discussion, because we won't have dialogue, because we don't know how to argue our point without becoming belligerent or belittling. And we need to be able to do that. And so that's what we want to do this morning. Because if, if we're not willing to, to challenge people and to be challenged ourselves on our thoughts and beliefs and actions, then what's the purpose of our position? And where's the power of our faith? Is your faith so small that it can't be challenged to see if it really equals up to what you believe? And are you so unwilling to share your opinion in a situation because you don't really know what ground you stand on? It's important that we have these conversations. So throughout this series, we're going to be looking at it, again titled, The Problem of God. And I titled that because I was given a book by a friend with the same title, The Problem of God, written by Mark Clark. And he provides a lot of these things that we're going to be diving into through his book. I want to ask you a question. Is, is being skeptical bad? Would you say that it's bad to be skeptical? No, it's not bad to be skeptical. In fact, Christians are skeptical. We're skeptical of all other religions. By pursuing Jesus, we're saying all of those other things don't add up. We're skeptical. We're skeptical of a lot of things. Being skeptical is not bad. But when you refuse to submit your skepticism to facts that are presented before you and have dialogue and discussion about those things, then skepticism turns into cynicism and you can't be told and you can't have dialogue. Your heart becomes hard. And that's not what we want to do as a church going into a society that needs desperately the love and light of Jesus. Especially those, I'm thinking of you, who graduated and moving on. You're on campuses, you're going on to college campuses, you're going into high school, and you're going to need to be able to dialogue with people who don't know Jesus in a way that is effective for them. And I want to give you some of those tools. So being skeptical isn't bad, but being able to open up your heart to those things when you're proven wrong is good. So this morning, if you're skeptical of God's existence, you don't have to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to be like, do you believe in God? No. you know. But I want to say thank you for being here this morning. And secondly, if you are skeptical of God's existence, I would challenge you to open up your heart to uh, the facts and the rational decision-making that, that we're going through this morning and allow them to lead to their natural conclusions. Would you agree that you'll do that this morning? Because we believe that, that there is evidence that God exists. So our main question to this morning that we're asking is, does God exist? Is He, is he real? And there's many ways and options that we can go about this. There's several things that we can jump into, but the two main ones that are going to, we're going to be looking at is what philosopher Immanuel Kant says is the moral law within and the starry host above. Those are the two evidences that he gives that when they work together, we can prove that God exists. Another way of saying is that we're going to be looking at people and the universe. The moral law that is within all of us, that God has put inside of us, and the, the stars above, the cosmology, the, the, the universe around us. We're going to be looking at that. So I want you to stay with me because this is going to be pretty heady. It's going to be a lot of head knowledge. 
that we're diving into because I don't know how to present it any other way. We're looking at straight science, okay? And uh, I'm not Bill Nye, but I'm going to try my best to uh, present this in a way that's engaging. And um, I don't know if you like Bill Nye. He's a science guy and whatever. Who cares about Bill Nye? The first one is that uh, the evidence of morality. We're going to be looking at the evidence of morality. Because you've all heard, even from early age, those of you even who have, who have kids and you watch them grow up, know that there's some unspoken code that kids lean to for fairness. Right? When a kid's playing with your iPhone and the iPad and the other kid's like, hey, you've had it for too long, it's my turn now, it's not fair. You've ever heard a kid say that? Never. You've never heard a child ever say that. Or, hey, I was here first, get behind me. There's this, like, rule, unspoken, a standard of behavior that, that all kids just lean on. And, and not just kids, adults do that too, right? You're at work, you work hard, you're diligent, you're there early, you're, you leave late, and they give the raise to somebody else. You're like, this is all backwards. The world is collapsing because no one's following the rules. I'm putting in the work, I deserve the raise. Yeah? When you, you, you do something, we'll say some, something like this. Hey, uh, I bought your lunch today. You can buy my lunch tomorrow. There's this unspoken rule that we all lean on, a standard of behavior. And C.S. Lewis says that this unspoken behavior is what we call morality. That there's some standard out there, some rule that we all work within. And the question for us then is, where does this unspoken rule come from? Where does this morality come from? Does it come from society or does it come from God? Where does it develop? Those who are skeptical, those who would believe in evolution or, or be atheists would say that society drives morality. Society, culture, is the one who creates a moral code or a moral law to live up to. And society is the one who dictates what's right and what's wrong. Have you ever heard that before, anybody? Society is what decides what's good and what's bad. So in that regard, morality would be subjective or subject to what is right in your culture, in your community. So your culture would say that cutting somebody off is wrong, but maybe in another culture they say there's nothing wrong with cutting somebody off and they're morally okay when you cut somebody off. Does that make sense? So sub morality is subject to culture. This is what evolution would, would say. And it developed through um, what, uh, what Darwin wrote about is reciprocal altruism. In Darwin's book of the, the, the Origin of Species, he talked about the reason we treat each other well is because if I treat you well, it benefits me. Yeah? So if, if I watch your back, you'll watch my back. If I give you some food, when I'm hungry, you'll give me some food. I don't do it because I love you. I do it because I love myself. This is reciprocal altruism. I do well to you so that you will do well for me. The idea is survival and that our kids will continue to, to stay alive. That's the idea of evolution and how evolution drives morality. That's where morality comes from if you don't believe that there's a God who gives morality. Are you tracking with me? Are you following? So... Thank you for that amen. I don't know if I was going to get an amen on this message, but thank you. Morality is driven by doing good to others to benefit yourself. Here's the challenge. We do things in culture 
that would go against what evolution says is good morals. We champion those who do things that is countercultural to their own survival and the benefit of their offspring. Let me explain. If someone is floating down the river and they're about to drown, you feel morally obligated to jump in and try to help them. Would you agree? How does that self-sacrifice benefit you? You might die. You may not reach them in time, or you may drown with them. How does that benefit your offspring? It does nothing to make sure that your kids continue to... No, it actually might rob their, your kids of, of, of a parent. But we champion people that do that. We champion heroes that run into burning buildings, sacrificing their lives to save others. That's against an evolutionary naturalism. That goes against an evolutionary moral. Are you picking that up? Are you following me? With me? We, 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 we champion things that we would say do not benefit us in the evolutionary story. When people give generously and no one else knows about it, right? How is that benefiting them personally or benefiting their offspring? But yet we believe that people that give generously to orphans, to widows, for causes, are good people. Yes? They're doing a moral good. And so there's a challenge there against evolutionary naturalism in relation to morality. But not only that, I want you to know that if evolution dictates our morality, then we are morally bankrupt as a society. And let me, let me tell you why. Evolution is derived from this idea of naturalism. Naturalism points to what Darwin says is survival of the fittest. And he wrote a book called uh, The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle of Life. Darwin believed because evolutionary chains work and there are some races that are higher than others in society, that those races are favored. And those races should continue to be equipped and built up to continue to uh, increase the level of evolutionary chain in humanity. And so he believed that as evolution increased, we should discourage those of lesser races from breeding so that we could purify the human genome. Where do you think, who, who do you think developed uh, abortion in our nation? People who believe that morality came from God or people who believe that morality came from evolution? Because who are the people that primarily abort their babies? People of lower socioeconomic class or status, people who are not well off or in minority groups. Yes, look at the statistics. And so when we say morality is derived from evolutionary naturalism, we say that we should remove the unfavored races. That's not at all what God says. And if that is where we get our morality, no wonder we're morally bankrupt. No wonder we're trying to kill off those who are unfavorably uh, connected in their, in their genes. Darwin even wrote that those who have traits that are undesirable should, be, should, should not breed or get married, those who are mentally challenged or physically challenged or have other traits that are not desirable. And in the early 1900s, there were, there were philosophers and scientists that began to create these Congresses called uh, eugenics congresses where they would say, how do we purify the 
human gene pool so that we continue to evolve. And they recommended that they begin to sterilize those who are uh, of undesirable traits so that those who are of desirable traits can continue to increase and we would become a superior race. Have you heard of that before? Are they teaching you that in schools about evolution? Probably not. But that's the natural consequence. And so there was a man in the early 1900s who took this idea and said, yes, there are superior races. I'm a part of the superior race, and we need to remove those who are of the lesser races so that we do not pollute our human gene pool. Do you know what his name was? Hitler. Adolf Hitler believed in evolutionary naturalism, that morality is derived from evolutionary standpoints, not from God, and so he was justified in murdering millions of Jews because he was purifying the human genome. Man, that's thick, isn't it? That's heavy. That's heavy. I don't see anybody writing notes. <laughs> what I want you to know is that if, if morality comes from evolution, we are on a dangerous trajectory. But if morality comes from God, then there is an objective morality that covers all of humanity, the way we treat and love one another. But if our morality is subjective to our culture, then we become morally bankrupt. And the reason I want to explain that to you is that naturalism as an explanation of morality falls extremely short in what God is doing and what we are doing as human beings, caring for one another, loving one another. And it is more rational to see that moral law was placed inside of us by a moral lawgiver. So if, if society creates morality and it's subjective, then each culture is going to have their own form of morality. But if we have a moral lawgiver who puts his moral code inside of each one of us, then morality is universal. Are you following me? Morality is universal. And, 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 and the argument would be then, well, what about those cultures that eat people? Right? That, on, a, on a skeptic's level, that would be a question that I would ask. If I'm coming from, from a, a skeptical standpoint, well, what do you do with those who eat people or, or kill people or do human sacrifice? What about the moral law that's within them? I see morality as a math equation. That there is a right answer, but in, when we're trying to solve the right answer, sometimes we get it wrong. I think in those, in those societies and cultures, they realized they needed a sacrifice to become pure and connect with God. They just had the wrong sacrifice. We believe the sacrifice is Jesus, who was given, his blood was shed for us that we could have relationship with the Father. These cultures were trying to find it, but did, they missed a, a plus or a minus somewhere back here in the math equation, and they got the answer wrong. See, Faith was a math teacher for, for seventh grade. She taught math, and how many of you loved math in seventh grade? Jay and Juanita loved math in seventh grade. <laughs> what they would do, right, because they don't want to do algebra, right? They just want to see what girl likes them. Uh, they, they, they had to show their work, and so they would do all of these things and write all of the stuff down. Some of you, you know what I'm talking about. You, you're, you, you've done it too. You just write, I don't know what the answer is, but I'm just going to keep doing all these things. I'm going to keep writing all this stuff down, and maybe I'll get credit for the work. Society is doing all of these things to try to figure out the math equation of morality and showing a lot of work, but getting it wrong. Getting the problem, uh, the answer to the problem wrong. So these cultures 
that subjectively are doing things that would be considered morally wrong, they've just gotten the answer wrong. But it doesn't mean that the moral law within them is gone. There is still a moral law giver who gives us the answers. Morality transcends our culture and is not a product of culture. Skeptics would say that morality is a product of our culture because there is no universal law giver and there's no absolute right or wrong. Right? You've heard people say, is there absolute truth? No. My truth is different than your truth. Is there right, absolute right or wrong? No. My wrong is different than your wrong. Your right is different than my right. But when we have those conversations and we say that there's no absolute right and wrong, we've just eroded the, the foundation of what we're standing on. So if we say that morality is not right, there's not, what morality is, what's right for you is not right for me, then I don't have any footing to, to tell you that one view of abortion is better than another view of abortion. I can't tell you that murdering innocent women and children is bad if culturally, in their culture, it, it says it's okay. Because I've removed the grounding by saying your morality is not my morality. Does that make sense? So morality has to be universal. We couldn't even get mad at the person who cuts us off. Because maybe they think it's okay. And who am I to impose my morality on them? Huh? No, we know it's wrong. Don't cut me off. Yeah? We know deep down inside that there are things that are just wrong. Would you agree? There are things that are wrong. And even if we, we traveled to another place, we, we, we traveled to another land... And they were doing things that we would consider wrong. It doesn't make that right because their society says it's right. An example in the book that I was reading is uh, uh, Mark Clark had a roommate who was an atheist. And he asked him, if we went to a, a, a different country where they ate people and they kidnapped your sister and ate her, would you be able to condemn them as being wrong? And the guy thought for a while and he said, you know, I would be upset but morally, I couldn't say that they, what they had done was wrong. Are you kidding me? <laughs> That's crazy. These people just ate your sister. And you're like, well, hopefully she was good. <laughs> it, in all reality, we, we erode the footing of our own standing when we say that morality is not objective. And that's a good example of it, unless you really don't like your sister. <laughs> Morals have to transcend our culture because there is right and there is wrong. And whether you believe in God or not, whether you're a Christian or not, does not remove the moral law within. So there's some, there were some studies shown and a, and a, a a scientist, I can't remember what university he was at, did a study of, let's see what's, if people can tell us what's right and what's wrong. And he had a, a group of Christians and then a group of atheists. And they both agreed on several things that they considered right and wrong. And the guy said, see, we don't need God to have moral law. And we would say, no. God has put moral, moral law within all of us, whether you recognize him or not. And this is what Paul said in, in Romans 2. 14 and 15, he says, For when Gentiles, that's speaking of those who are not of the Jewish people, when Gentiles 
who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. God has written his law on our hearts, whether we know him or not. He is a good, good father, and he wants us to live correctly, to live rightly. And it's written on all our hearts. That's the evidence of morality within all of us. That God has written it on our hearts so that we might know him. That we might desire to be like him. Yeah, but there's evil in the world. People do bad things. Yes, but it has not removed the moral law. Sin has overrode the moral law within their hearts. And the moral law cannot become really pure inside of us until we submit it to Jesus and he redeems it. Sin corrupts, Christ restores. So we were given a moral law to know what's right and wrong. Sin came in, corrupts it, we do bad things and justify it. Would anybody have any experience doing that at all? Doing wrong and being like, uh, God understands. Right? We justify our wrong. God comes in through Jesus, redeems it so that we can live out correctly what God has said is right and wrong. Is that good? All right. Take a breather. We're going to jump into evidence number two. Are you ready? Evidence number two is the universe. God said, let there be light, and there was light. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is what we believe. And the evidence is found in the universe. What what the philosopher says, the starry host above. Now, both science and philosophy agree on this understanding of the word contingency. What the word contingency means, that if something began to exist... There had to be something that pre-existed before it that was not a part of it to create it. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me? That's what contingency is. The existence of those chairs that you're sitting on is contingent upon somebody who made them. Yeah? The chairs did not exist exist on their own. They were not here from the foundations of the world. Someone made them, and for them to be made, someone who's not a chair had to make it. Because chairs aren't going around making themselves. Yeah? <laughs> so that's the understanding of contingency. And both science and philosophy agree, both atheists and theists agree, that everything that begins to exist has a cause. If it began to exist, it's because something caused it to exist. So the question then for us this morning in relation to the universe is, so what is the non-contingent eternal thing that started the universe? What is that thing that is not the universe that started the universe? Good question, yeah? All of you are wondering. Here we're we're going to go. We're going to answer it. For history, for most of history, atheists and agnostics, which are people that uh, don't, they believe there might be a higher power, but they're not quite sure. They believed, and they would say this, that you don't need God to start the universe because the non-contingent eternal thing is the universe itself. The universe has always been. That's been an argument. And it still is an argument today because it was so hard to disprove. It was so difficult to be like, nope, the universe started. Oh yeah, prove it. And so people would argue that. The universe has been around forever. Except until our friend, Edwin Hubble, made an awesome telescope. And he, in 1929, saw that the universe had a time and a place in the past for its existence. He was able to observe that the universe started at one point in the past. 
And he created a theory, a theory that we call, and there's a TV show called The Big Bang Theory. Because what he observed was galaxies moving apart from each other at such great rapid speed into a universe that was far bigger than we could ever imagine or think of. And he said, they're moving at such great rate, if we rewound that, we could find out when the universe started. So regardless of what you believe about young Earth, old Earth, we could talk about that too, and I think I have an answer for that as well. But we're just looking at the universe itself and believing whether it happened 13 billion years ago or 15 billion years ago. The point is the universe started at one point in the past. Would you agree? This is what science tells us. And do you know that the scientists, when, when, when Hubble's theory first came out, they rejected it? They rejected it. And here's why, and I quote, it seemed to give, it seemed to give into the Judeo-Christian idea of a beginning of the world, and it also seemed to have a call for an act of supernatural creation. So the scientific community rejected the Big Bang Theory because it, it, it was too... Uh, it, it removed the non-contingent, eternal sphere of the universe and said something had to start it that wasn't a part of it. And they rejected it. Now, it's widely accepted. All, all science fields accept the Big Bang Theory, that a big explosion happened, and now we're here. But how do they explain that? Because we just said if something was created, it had to be created outside of itself. And there's a leading theory but what they miss is what Christianity has told them all along in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's what we believe. That God, who's not material, outside of time and space and matter, because the Bible says he's spirit, created time, space, and matter and energy and everything that's within our universe today. Which makes sense. It's more rational than what is explained with skeptical atheism, which says this. This is the leading uh, theory, the leading hypothesis. It's called the nothing hypothesis. It goes like this. What caused the Big Bang? Nothing. Did the Big Bang happen? Yes. What caused it? Nothing. Does that seem more rational than saying that there's a God who is, who is spirit that created everything that we know today? No, nothing is the answer you give when you're fighting with your spouse and they ask you what's wrong. Yeah? Nothing is the answer you give when you don't want to get out of bed and your wife hears a sound and says, what was that? <laughs> and nothing is the, is the answer your kids give you when you're, they're getting into trouble and you can't hear them. You say, hey, what's going on in there? Nothing. <laughs> nothing is not the appropriate answer here. Nothing doesn't lead us to understanding how the Big Bang Theory started, or how the universe started. Because we all know when you ask your spouse what's wrong, she says nothing. There's something wrong, friends. <laughs> all right, I didn't know I was going to do marriage counseling this morning, but if she says nothing, you better find out what's wrong. Yeah? When you're in bed and you hear a sound, something caused the sound. You're just tired and you don't want to get out of bed. It'll be fine. It was just the cat. You're making an assumption here because you just don't want to do the research to find out what caused it. And when your kids say they're not doing, they're doing nothing, they're destroying your house, okay? <laughs> There's nothing going to be left in their bedroom if you don't get in there quick. Nothing is not the right answer. 
Nothing is not rational because something caused it. It's much better to say and more rational to say that God, who is transcending of time, space, matter, and energy, created in a moment our universe, which is much better than saying nothing caused it because nothing doesn't work. Because the logic is this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. And the Big Bang Theory cries out for a divine explanation. That explanation I submit to you today is a creator who created us with a purpose of knowing him. He created all of these things for us and then he gave us wisdom and understanding and sciences to know him because he desires to be known. And we've turned those tools against him and saying these tools in themselves are what defines who we are, not who the, the creator who defines us. He's created opportunities for us to know him. And our existence is so fine-tuned it goes beyond luck because there's also a hypothesis called the lucky us hypothesis that says it just, we don't know how it happened, we don't know why it happened, but it happened, so let's just live it up. Lucky us. This is a hypothesis, and this is, this is the scientific community. This, that doesn't sound scientific, but they say there's billions and millions of times that the universe exploded and crunched and expanded and did all these things, and it just eventually, boom, we got it, we worked it out. And now, just look, yes, it, it just, they cross your fingers, don't breathe too much, and just keep living because it, it happened. And they'll say this, they'll say, it's like getting the royal flush in poker. It just happened, just live it up, you won. The problem is they're not comparing apples to apples when they say that. They're not, they're not comparing that because the odds of getting a royal flush in poker is something like 1 in 650,000. The odds that our universe came into existence in perfect harmony at the same time that the laws of physics were developed to govern all the things within the universe is 1 in 10 to the 138th power. None of you are shocked by that because that's a huge number and we don't know how to grasp it. Let me give you some ideas of how to grasp what that is. The first is that if you believe in the Big Bang Theory that it started, it started 15 billion years ago. So from the number of seconds from 15 billion years ago up to today is something like 1 uh, or something like 10 to the 17th power. 10 to the 17th power. I just said the chances of the universe coming to existence is 10 to the 138th power. I'll just give you the number of seconds from 15 billion years until now. The number of atoms in the entire universe, your body, my body, the chairs, the planets, the space, like, and our universe is massive. They believe the number of atoms in our universe is somewhere between, uh, somewhere around 10 to the 70th power. That's 10, that's one with 70 zeros behind it. To give you perspective on that, here, here's some numbers you may recognize. Uh, go back to the, the other slide, yeah. 10 to the ninth power is 1 with 9 zeros behind it, which is a billion. Yeah, we, we know what a billion is, kind of, right? Just check your bank account. You're like, yeah, I got a couple bill in there. 10 to the 12th power is 1 with 12 zeros behind it, or a trillion dollars, right? Which is, uh, you add 16 of those and you got the United States debt. We understand kind of that. That's a, that's a lot. 12, 12 zeros is a lot. And again, like I said, the number of seconds in the universe 
10 to the 17th power. So one with 17 zeros behind it, number of seconds from the beginning of the universe. Next slide. Number of atoms, 10 to the 70th power. The probability of the universe coming to existence, 10 to the 138th power that the universe just happened. So in relation to the royal flush in poker, to compare apples to apples, you would have to be dealt a royal flush in poker every hand, every day, forever, to get anywhere close to that kind of probability. Who plays poker? Anybody? No, pastor, I'm a Christian. Okay. <laughs> Let me just tell you this. If you ever received a royal flush in poker, man, people are going to be like, are you kidding me? Like, be upset, wanting to turn the table over. Like, this is ridiculous. Man, I had a great hand. I had, I had a flush, you know, but a royal flush beats a flush. We're not going to go into what beats what. Uh, but... <laughs> If it happened again, they'd be upset, like throwing your, the chips in your face. If it happened a third time, they're picking you up and throwing you outside because you're cheating. Because that's not luck. That's cheating. And to be dealt a royal flush every time you played, every hand you played, every day, not just for the rest of your life, but forever, would barely get you anywhere close to the probability of the, university, the universe coming into existence on its own. So to call it lucky is not luck. It's not luck. God created us in a moment, in a breath. said, let there be light, and there was light. He says that he knows every star, billions and billions and trillions of stars. He knows them by name, and he knows you by name. And he revealed himself to us through the word, through science, so that we can know him, so that we can see that there is a creator. And we're not just here floating through life saying, lucky me, because life gets hard and sometimes you don't feel so lucky. God is saying to you today, I created you, I love you, and I want you to know me and I want to know you. And that's the evidence that God exists. And it is more rational, more logical to say that there is a creator who created it all than to believe something that is scientifically impossible. The levels of probability are on the scope of miraculous. That's because we serve a miraculous God. And he loves us. 